beggar is working the gold fields. He endures great hardship, the rain and mud, the back-breaking work, the cold of the winter in Ballarat living in a tent. He ekes out a living and he saves whatever he makes from the specks of gold and the small nuggets he finds in his pan. He doesn't join in the drinking of his fellow diggers. He doesn't seek to buy land or a bigger claim. He denies himself comforts. And it's not because he's a tight-fisted Scot. He has a girl, Mary Cameron, in Strathaven in the Clyde Valley, his home, and he intends to marry her. They've made an agreement before he left, and he'd left the Clyde to make enough money to allow them to have a place of their own. Letters travel slowly, and they're a poor substitute, but he sticks at his work, for his Mary is waiting for him and has promised to be his bride. Robert McGregor labours in hope in the expectation that his hard present will yield a better future. Robert has a hope and it costs him. It's dislocated him from his home and family. It's led him to endure great privation, especially before his claim paid. It's exposed him to the danger of travel on the oceans. To be true to your hope costs, though he didn't complain. And sadly, he also knew that sometimes hopes disappoint. We know that, don't we? What if, say, after four years' hard work and saving, Robert had returned only to find that Mary couldn't wait, that in her frailty she'd married one of the local farmers? Or what if Mary waited faithfully, only to learn that Robert had died of pneumonia in a Ballarat winter two years before the news reached her? Some hopes fail. But the joy of a hope fulfilled, of finding the one you hoped in to be faithful, of knowing your sacrifices vindicated, well, that's soundness to your bones, light in your eye, confidence in your dealings, health and wholeness, a spring of life. To hope is so human, and we all live with hope. Some of our hopes are near seeing the children grow up, succeeding in our studies, marrying the one we love, having our work recognised, but some more distant, more ultimate. And hopes especially, ultimate hopes vary, don't they? We know that. The hope of materialists, for example, is the extinction of all hope, to die and rot. The hope of a Muslim is to be found to have been good enough through the practice of the five pillars and the rest of the Sharia, <coughs> to be rewarded with paradise on the day of judgment. The hope of a Buddhist to have more good karma than bad and ultimately to escape the cycle of rebirth. Christians have a hope different from all those. Our hope is to share by God's grace, not our works, in the rest of God. Being where Jesus is, welcomed into the heavenly city, being raised, our bodies changed to be like Jesus' glorious body, all weakness and impairment gone forever. Our hope is to live forever in the new heaven and earth where God has said that all things are made new and there'll be no weeping or pain or mourning for death will be no more and God himself, he says, will wipe every tear from our eyes. It's a wonderful hope. But being true to that hope costs. It means, say, denying ourselves in the present to follow Jesus, 
to give up our desire, for example, for a quiet life, to be engaged with others in love and service, to risk safety and prosperity, not only our own but our families, to go wherever Jesus calls us, to turn our back on opportunities for pleasures that are forbidden, say to deny ourselves revenge when we've been hurt. Our hope costs us in what we deny ourselves. Oh, and our hope can also cost us in suffering, being cut off from family and friends for the sake of Jesus, enduring loneliness, being the object of mockery, staying in a loveless marriage, grieving for those who seem to be rejecting Christ. The first hearers of this letter to the Hebrews knew that there was a cost to be true to Jesus and the hope he gives. And they were paying that cost. We see that in chapter 10, suffering loss of prosperity and imprisonment, experiencing violent and threats to their lives. And some were tempted to give up, to go quiet on their faith, to blend back into the wider community. And so as we heard our last week, our author wrote, wrote say 6.11, to urge his hearers to show the same earnestness, that is the same zeal and diligence for the fullness of their hope, to achieve the fullness of their hope, to show that same earnestness that they showed at the beginning when they first believed and that they were continuing to show in loving one another. He wants them to show that zealness, zeal for the fullness of their hope. So he says, they're amongst those who through faith and patience long-suffering, inherit the promise. Those who know the joy of a hope realised. But of course the problem with hope is that it's always for things we don't presently possess that are not in a sense in our grasp, in our sight. We don't, says the Apostle Paul, hope for what we see, for what we have already. Our author wants his hearers to be zealous for something they don't yet have. And we all know that can be hard. We can grow tired of waiting. Our hope can fade. We can become so distracted with present concerns that our hope falls out of our consciousness, forgotten. And we can start to doubt as the years go by whether our hope will ever be realised. So as we wait for what we don't yet possess, as we pay the cost of living with hope, how can we know our hope won't disappoint, that it's sure and certain that there will be an inheritance for those who persevere in faith and patience? What encouragement is there to persevere in being zealous for our hope? Well, having urged such zeal, such earnestness for our hope, our author encourages us to know that this hope is sure and certain certain, by giving us in verses 13 to 20 three compelling reasons why we can know our hope is sure. And so firstly in verses 13 to 15 he's going to say look at God's track record when it comes to promises. Does he keep them? Yes. Look at the life of Abraham, what he said to Abraham. God delivers on what he's promised. And secondly, in verses 16 to 18, he's going to say, 
Look at how committed God is to his promise, his purpose. Look, he even swears, takes an oath by himself that he will keep his promise. And then thirdly, in verses 19 to 20, he'll say, look at whether God can deliver, whether he has the ability to deliver on his promise. I mean, we need a demonstrated capacity, don't we? We need to see that God has a demonstrated capacity to do what he said he will do. I mean, you wouldn't trust someone to guide you to the top of Mount Everest who'd never been there themselves, would you? Well, he says, see, has God got a demonstrated capacity? You say, yes, look at Jesus. You know he can do what he says. So, firstly... What's God's track record when it comes to delivering on his promises? For when God, verse 13, made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, our author directs his hearers to Abraham, and it makes sense because... For his first hearers, people from a Jewish background, Abraham is the man in the life of the Jewish people. He's the one to whom God had made the big promises on which their distinct identity and their relationship with God depended. He made those promises first in Genesis 12 when he called Abraham to leave his home and journey to Palestine made those promises when Abraham was 75 years old. But the author actually directs us in Hebrews 6 to the third repetition of those promises, the repetition you heard read in Genesis 22, where God said to Abraham, By myself I've sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. But note, the promise goes on. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, this repetition of the promises is significant because well, as you've heard, the text here says God swore by himself, invokes himself as the guarantor of the promise. Now, author's going to enlarge on that in verses 16 to 18. But this third repetition is also significant because God makes it. He repeats this blessing after Abraham had been tested by the command to sacrifice Isaac the one in whom God had said he would fulfil his promises to Abraham, the one through whom, as our author reminds us in chapter 11, Abraham's offspring will be named, who, through whom those who are really Abraham's children will come. And so at the very place where Abraham could have thought the promise most under threat, where his faith in the promise and the God who gave it is most tested where the fulfilment of the promise seems most tenuous. As Isaac's frailty and mortality is emphasised, God reassures Abraham of the certainty of the fulfilment of the promise. And God, remember, our author reminds us, God delivered. 
he says, oh, going all the way back, yes, he's having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. God delivered. The Jews knew that from their history. God had said, I'll bless you. And they knew Abraham was called the friend of God and enjoyed in his life prosperity and protection. Oh, and yes, even though he had to wait 25 years for the birth of Isaac, they also knew that that was just the beginning and that from Abraham came the 12 tribes and then a multitude of people. God delivered on this promise of blessing and offspring to the patient Abraham. But as we saw in Genesis 22, there is actually more to this promise. God has also said that all the nations will be blessed through him. And so there's more to the fulfilment of this promise. And Hebrews will bring that out. Abraham is both one who received what was promised and Abraham who is still, as we see in chapter 11, waiting for the fulfilment of all that is promised. Oh, scripture teaches us that there's an initial fulfilment of that blessing of the nations in the preaching of the gospel in many Gentiles uh, coming to faith in Jesus. Knowing then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, know then, sorry, that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. That promise of in Abraham, all the nations being blessed in Abraham's offspring has already started to be fulfilled in the preaching of the gospel, but that blessing of the nations in Abraham includes more. You see, following our Lord, Hebrews says that Abraham trusted God for the resurrection. He trusted God for the heavenly city whose builder and maker is God for the full restoration of humanity to relationship with God the living God, in the new heaven and earth. You see, there is more. More in the promises to Abraham that await fulfilment. But the history of the Jewish people, the fulfilment of the promise in God's enduring relationship with them, and also the fulfilment of the promise in the gospel of Jesus, leaves beyond doubt the fact that God keeps his promises. The original hearers knew that. We also know the truth of what our author says in chapter 11. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand. God has, in his dealings with Abraham, demonstrated faithfulness. And Abraham received, after enduring trial and testing of his faith, what was promised. God can be relied on to keep his promise. And then in verses 16 to 18, our author tells us that God is wholly committed to keeping his promise. Letting us know that is the point of God swearing an oath by himself. For people, writes our author, swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now swearing oaths, except maybe in the playground, has fallen out of fashion in our day-to-day lives. But oaths were common in the culture of the first century before written agreements became the norm. You see, in an oath, the person swearing the oath would invoke someone greater, normally a god, to witness what was said, oh, and to punish them if they didn't do it. You see, they invoked the one who was greater because that one had the power to either compel conformity to what was promised or to punish failure to perform what was committed to. And so an oath was sworn to confirm the truth of what was said, to make clear the oath swearer's commitment to doing what he or she had said. And so an oath was seen as kind of ending the discussion, bringing disputes about the truthfulness, about the commitment to do what was said to an end. Now God didn't need to swear an oath. God can't lie. He's always true. And there is no one beyond himself whose actions can add to his commitment to do what he said because there's no one greater than himself. His word alone should be accepted as final. But scripture says the Lord did swear by himself. He invoked himself as witness and enforcer of what he'd promised and he did it for our sake. See that verse 17? When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, to show to the heirs the unchangeable character, he guaranteed it with an oath. He did it for our sake. For ours, yes, that's right, for the heirs of the promise. Now you might think that that's Isaac and Jacob and their descendants, but look at verse 18. Those heirs are the same people who have fled in trusting Jesus for refuge so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. The promise to Abraham that all the nations should be blessed in him, in his offspring, is, says the author, a promise to us, a promise God guaranteed. Those promises in Genesis 12, you see, are God's response to the destructive spread of sin in creation. They're the expression of God's intention to undo the work of Adam that has brought us all under the power of sin and death and the devil's lies. In Abraham's offspring, who we know is Jesus, God was promising, promising to us that our sin would be dealt with that the rule of the devil would be destroyed and we would be set free from death. And through the oath God utters in Genesis 22, God wants us to know the unchangeable nature of his purpose, of his intention to bless the world in Abraham's offspring. You see, the oath joins God's dignity, his name, his revelation of himself and his very being to the fulfilment of the promise. He has committed himself in this oath to ensure the fulfilment of the promise 
and he's let us know by the oath that the promise will only fail if God fails to be himself, fails to be the one who he has said he is, always true and faithful. And we know that will not happen. God is. He is. I am who I am. He will always be himself. And so, says our author, through two things, the word of God who cannot lie, and through the commitment of God in his oath to be the God who keeps his promises, to give himself wholly to keep his promise, believers will have the strongest encouragement to grasp hold of the promise. In the words of the CSV translation, to seize the hope set before it. We're to seize and to hold on to our hope. But notice how he describes believers here. He says, we who have fled for refuge. The word translated fled for refuge was used in the Old Testament to describe the action of those escaping the avenger of blood and going to the city of refuge appointed by God, of those fleeing from death to the refuge God provided. It was used of desperate people seeking refuge. And that's actually us. In trusting Jesus, we are fleeing. We are fleeing judgment. We are fleeing the one who holds the dominion of death. We are fleeing death and the fear of death. And the encouragement God gives us as we embrace his provision for our safety, as we embrace his refuge, Jesus, is to grasp the hope set before us in Jesus, the hope set before us. Now, the hope that's set before us is the hope that's there in the gospel of Jesus, open, accessible for all to see in the promises Jesus makes his followers. Now, hopefully, you know them. They're wonderful. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me will not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. These are promises that not only will he raise us, but that he will return and establish the just and righteous reign of God in the new heaven and earth. Is God committed to that promise? Yes, with his whole reputation. He has staked his whole honour, his being God on keeping the promise. Oh, and thirdly, he is able to deliver because he has secured our hope already through his Son. We have this, this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In one brief phrase, the author reminds us of the wonder of our hope. It's a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain. Our author's drawing a picture familiar to them from the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And he's going to talk quite a lot about that uh, later on in, in Hebrews, especially 9. But in that tabernacle, there's a curtain. It's in red that separated the holy place from the most holy place. 
In the most holy place there was the Ark of the Covenant with the tablets of stone on which the Ten Commandments were inscribed. It was the place of the presence of the Holy God into which the high priest could go just once a year on the Day of Atonement having made sacrifices for his sins and the sins of his people. By using this phrase the author is saying our hope, the believer's hope, is to be in the presence of the most holy God. It's to live as Adam and Eve did before the fall in the presence of God. It's to be at home with the God who is life. And in God's presence behind the curtain, there'll be no death there, no lies there, no lack there, no grief there, no fear there. The content of our hope is wonderful. But how can this be? How can we enter behind the curtain? Well, our author will explain that later when he talks about the priestly work of Jesus. But for now, he wants us to focus on a different question. And that is, how can we know this will be? How can we know we will enter behind the curtain? Well, the answer... Jesus, our Saviour. Jesus, whom he calls our forerunner, the one in the lead before all the other races. Jesus is there and is there now. And that says a human can go there into the presence of God. A human, Jesus, who's a man like us, the God-man, but a true humanity, he has gone there on our behalf for us. He's there for us, the leader of the many who follow him, who run the race of faith and obedience that he has run. He has gone there to show that God can do it. God can bring a human to live with him in his very presence. But of course Jesus is not just our representative or example. He's more than that. He's there as our high priest whose very presence in the presence of God means our sin is already and always dealt with, that we are in the language of Hebrews sanctified, made holy, fit for the presence of God by Jesus' sacrifice of himself. And made holy by Jesus' sacrifice, we know our sin will never drive us away from God's presence, that we will never be excluded, that we will be there forever. Now on this, our author will speak more in chapters 7 to 10, which we'll start together in May after Andy's done Habakkuk through April. But the point, however, is that God has secured our hope by the work of our great high priest who has fitted us for the presence of God and whose presence in the presence of God is an assurance both that our sin will always be covered over in God's sight by the virtue of his sacrifice and an assurance that we, humans, can enter into the presence of God. Our hope is sure. Why? Our God keeps his promises. We see that in the story of Abraham. Our God has committed himself, his whole person, to fulfilling his promise. He has, by his oath, joined his honour, his being God, to fulfilling his promise to us. And our God has secured our hope already through the priestly work of Christ. So do what the author tells you. Grasp your hope. Seize it. Hold it fast. This hope set before us, spoken of plainly 
and clearly in the gospel. And in grasping your hope, if you're a believer, let it be the anchor of your soul, what secures you both against gradual drift and being tossed on the rocks in stormy weather. Now, I want to talk about both those things. But first, let me talk to those of you who have not yet confessed Jesus as Lord, who have not yet believed his gospel. Think for you a moment. If that's you, what is your hope? What can you hope for? Is it some vague hope that everything kind of be all right? Or is it a reliance on having been a good enough person, even though you've never had much time for God? Or is your hope denying any hope? You are hanging out just to die and rot, which seems so sad. Well, I want to say two things to you. Firstly, recognise that this hope that Jesus gives, if it is true and sure, extinguishes all other hopes. If this hope in Jesus is true, your hope is false. And what the gospel says about each of us, that it's given to us once to die and after death face judgment, is true. And in that judgment there is no having been good enough. It's not a question of the good you have done, you may have done balancing out the bad, the wrong you have done. So, for example, your loving your family won't make up for your stealing from the government on your tax or your lying. Your being a good public citizen or model employee, that won't make up for being unfaithful to your wife. Oh, your loving your neighbour, even if you did it perfectly, would not make up for not loving God. And in that judgement, there is no escape as if God would leave you alone because you've chosen to have nothing to do with him. No, you're his creature, you're still accountable to him and you will still receive what your deeds deserve. If this hope Jesus brings is true, then your hope, if it is not in him, whatever it is, is false. And you are without hope. And only the prospect of death and judgment and the punishment, eternal punishment, your wrong deserves awaiting you. That's the first thing I want to say to you. But secondly, this hope of life in the presence of the true and just God can be yours. You see, this is the hope not of the good, but of those who trust Jesus, the Son of God, and confess him Lord. It's the hope of those who don't rely on themselves, but who rely on what Jesus has done in obedience to his Father dying on the cross for our sins. It's the hope of those who do what the gospel calls them to do, repent and believe. That is, to confess that they've been wrong, to ignore God, to misuse God's good gifts to defy him, wrong to disobey him, to please themselves, and say it is right. The Lord Jesus rules their lives, for he is God's Son. He is Lord. And he has the authority to forgive our sins. It's the hope that you can know. The hope that you can know you have as you cry out to Jesus to be saved. As you cry out to the living Jesus who hears for forgiveness, to become God's child, one of Jesus' family, one whom he will raise from the dead. Without hope, 
if that's you, make this your hope, your hope, by calling on Jesus. But let me talk to the rest of you now. If you are believers, again I say, do what the author says. Grasp, seize and hold on to the hope set before you in the gospel. That hope is set forth so openly and plainly in the gospel, isn't it? The hope that the Lord Jesus will raise you up and through his spirit conform your risen body to the likeness of his glorious body. The hope that the Lord Jesus will bring you into the new heaven and earth. The hope that you will be brought into the presence of the living and holy God to be there in the presence of the one whom we were made to know and love and serve. I let this hope percolate through your mind and soul. Grasp it, hold on to it, make it your own. And so if you've never done this, you should say, trusting Jesus, I will rise. This, this world's not the end. I will rise. Believing in Jesus, though I die, Yet shall I live. Have you said that to yourself if you're a believer? Have you said that I made of dust, flawed and frail yet forgiven? I will see God's face. That is my sure hope. The hope given me by the God who keeps his word. The hope given me by the God who is wholly committed to his unchangeable purpose. The hope given me by the God who has given his son to be my great high priest. The son who is already seated in the presence of the father. Have you said to yourself, this sure hope is mine, wonderfully mine, and it is worth the cost. The cost of denying myself this or that fleeting pleasure or this or that transient comfort. The cost, for example, of saying no to marital unfaithfulness. The cost of not pursuing money. The cost of enduring hardship and trial, of being the odd one out in my family, say, or of being denied work or of being mocked for the sake of Jesus. The cost of even giving up your life for Jesus. This hope is worth it. It is worth the cost to experience the joy of the fulfilment of my hope, of knowing wholeness of body and soul, of knowing peace of conscience and heart, of having God himself wipe every tear from my eye, of the joy of sharing in the marriage of the Lamb. It is worth the cost, even though I know I can only faintly sense the full weight and worth of that joy. Grasp this hope. Make it your own. And then let it be the sure anchor of your soul, giving you constancy and security in all that life may bring. Let it be the anchor so you won't drift along with the great cultural currents so that you'll say to yourself, I will stay with Christ who is my hope. I mean, you know those currents that would draw you away from Christ, don't you? You know the great current of materialism, the materialism of our age that says a life is measured in possessions and so you should labour night and day for wealth and possessions to the neglect of God and others. Well, if you're a believer in Jesus, let your hope hold you fast. Say, those things will rot. 
and only Christ will bring me to my hope that will never rot or fade eternal life. No bank or super balance ever will do that. Oh, you know the great current of the hedonism of our age that says life is found in a succession of fleeting pleasures that you should pursue. Well, having your hope in Jesus, you say, no, those things will fail. They'll never satisfy. No sexual encounter, no travel adventure, no sporting achievement, no exotic meal will give you eternal life. So knowing that, you'll say, I'll stick with Jesus, living his way. Oh, you know that great current where we're told to seek the approval of our peers. No, knowing Jesus and the hope he gives, you'll say, I won't succumb to their pressure because they will, like me, die. Their approval will mean nothing in eternity. None of them can deliver me from eternal death and none of them can take from me what Christ has promised. I will stick with Christ. I will let my hope anchor me to Christ against the drift. And I'll let my hope keep me stable and secure. When I meet the storms of life, the events that threaten to overwhelm with their chaos or to blow me away with their power. So hopefully if you're a believer in sickness, you'll say, when I'm tempted to complain or grumble or despair, I will endure trial patiently, knowing what Jesus has prepared for me and that it is sure and that it is through faith and patience in trial that we inherit the promises. Oh, hopefully when your business fails or you lose your job, you'll remember that in Jesus you have an eternal treasure and you'll keep on listening to him and living his way. Oh, when you're exposed to hatred or loss because you follow Jesus, your hope will keep you thankful to be his, secure in what no human can ever take from you. And in the great crisis that we all must face, death itself. If you're a believer in Jesus, hopefully when the doctor gives you the diagnosis you dread or you sense in yourself the symptoms of your life coming to the end. Well, if you're a believer in Jesus, hopefully then you will look forward, knowing that that day was always coming and longing for what is ahead what your God has promised you. You'll look forward and stay put in Christ and live his way, freed by hope to be concerned for others, to love and to patiently await the day he has set for your departure. And you'll do that because in Christ, your hope, your glorious hope is secure. It is the promise of the promise-keeping God. It is the fixed intention of the one whose purpose is unchangeable. It is secured already for you by your great high priest Jesus who is already there in the presence of the Holy God gone before you. So hold fast to the hope set before you in the gospel. Let it sure and certain be the anchor of your soul. And so be amongst those who through faith and patience inherit. Come into the unchallenged possession of all that God has promised his people. So be amongst those who will know the joy, the eternal joy 
of hope fulfilled and longing ended. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that each of us who confesses Jesus as Lord will know for ourselves the certainty and sureness of the hope you give us and so be zealous for that hope. Convict us, we pray, from your word and from our experience that you are the God who keeps your promises. Convict us that you are wholly committed, that you have joined your glory to fulfilling your purpose for your people. And convict us, we pray, that Jesus, our forerunner, is already there in our presence, in your presence, and that our hope is secure. Help us, we pray, to grow in the certainty of this hope and so live every day now faithful to Jesus, secured to him and secure in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.